Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Series four will be the last in this podcast, and it has been the most incredible experience to dig into so many different aspects of the plant breeding world and literally the world. If you're listening to this, you're part of a community that spans the globe from Albania to Zambia, Adelaide, Australia and Ames, Iowa to Zurich. John Letts started out interested in seeds and plant breeding, but life, as sometimes happens, took him in a different direction. He became interested in history and historic agricultural practices and ended up becoming an archaeobotanist, reconstructing our understanding of what people were growing from ancient evidence. The twists and turns of his story involves a shoebox full of roof thatch, a return to plant sciences, and an entrepreneurial spirit that allowed him to self-fund his research. Today, he's pioneering a radically different climate-resilient approach to grain production. John, it's a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Can you kick us off by introducing yourself? Good morning, Hannah. My name's John, and I've been working with grain for 35 years or more. Um, I'm based in Buckinghamshire now. I lived for a long time in Oxford where I did a lot of my work and I've studied in various places. And you can probably tell by my accent that I'm not born in Britain, but I'm, I've been here a very long time, but I'm Canadian by origin and I grew up in Ontario. And I know Southern Ontario has a, a lot of agriculture. Did your interest in plants and so on start at an early age? Well, I grew up in a small French-Canadian-speaking village, actually, in southern Ontario. It was just all cash crop farming. So I worked on farms, all of the farms in the area, on different crops, more as a, a laborer and grew up on the farm. I was always really crazy about seeds. And I think I fancied myself as Johnny Appleseed. And I used to collect you know, apple seeds and fruit seeds and spread them around and, and think, oh, I'll come back in 30 years and eat those apples. I was always obsessed by seed and gardening. I think that I got that from my father and... My mum was already into that, but there wasn't really room for me on the farm, as it were. So I thought, well, I want to be near plants and farming and agriculture. I didn't really want to live in a big city. By the time I went off to uni, I thought, well, yeah, I think I'd quite like to be a plant breeder. And I'd become quite environmentally aware by that time already. And I think I was quite socially aware in the sense, perhaps I was naive, but I, I really wanted to do, go into plant breeding to produce crops to feed a starving world. So I went off to uni and decided to study botany and, and genetics. So you set out on a career path with the intention of being a plant breeder, but you actually switched directions fairly early on. Why was that? In my village, there was the biggest, the largest private plant breeding company in Canada. And so I started working there as summer jobs while I was still in the village. Uh, and we were working on mung beans in the field one day, and it was incredibly windy. And because Mung beans are an indeterminate plant. They just keep growing, or at least they did. That's what we were trying to change. 
that they kept growing and, and we wanted them to ripen and die so we could harvest them with a machine. And so we were spraying them with defoliant, uh, well, with Agent Orange, although it was purple at the time, as I remember, you know, desiccants and, and herbicides. And I kept screaming to the fellow saying, look, this is not landing on the crop. It's just blowing everywhere. And um, he said, what? And he turned and sprayed me with the sprayer covered with purple spray. Of course, it took me half an hour to get back to have a wash of any kind. And I have to say, that was a moment that really changed me. I mean, you, you know, when, when I grew up, you, don't, you didn't wear gloves, you didn't wear masks, you're using all sorts of chemical sprays. Nobody really thought about it. But we also some of the highest cancer rates in Canada in the village. And you think, well, there is a connection here. So I switched actually universities, went into environmental science and studies, but I never let go of the science or the genetics. I really still very much and still believe that clearly we have to draw on all the science we can to solve the problems we have. So it, it wasn't a, a kind of a hippie anti-science move. So I kept the genetics up and the botany and started to think more about environmentally sustainable production methods in agriculture, I suppose. Your story is a two-pronged story. You have science and plant breeding in one hand and history and archaeobotany in the other. Tell me about what ignited your interest in history. I got very interested in the, in the native peoples who had lived in that area hundreds of years ago called the Huron, Iroquois native population. But they were pretty much wiped out by what had happened when the Europeans arrived. But I got very interested in native foodways. Native peoples lived more in harmony with nature and all of that kind of concept. And I was very interested in that transition from hunting and gathering to farming. Somewhere in there, we messed up as a civilization, as, as humanity. And because clearly, well, I thought that the agricultural systems we have today are, are not sustainable. So I wanted to understand how those early phases of agriculture and of crops and how that change happened. I did a lot of research then on the food of pre-European native peoples and how that interacted ecologically, you know, how, how that influenced the environment. So I'm going to fast forward your story a bit. Um, after university, you moved to London in the UK and you found yourself working as a chef. But then you enrolled into University College London's archaeology department to study archaeobotany. So tell me about that. Yeah, I was looking for kind of ancient evidence of how farming systems worked in the past that I thought were more sustainable, more benevolent to the environment, and yet still fed people. And I thought, well, okay, people write about the past, but I want the evidence. I want the hard evidence, scientific evidence. So you can find seeds in archaeological sites. The seeds survive archaeologically for thousands of years if they've been turned into charcoal, basically, if they've been charred. And every archaeological site has that. You know, the detritus of human occupation of civilization ends up in fire pits and rubbish pits. And you can tell a lot by people's latrines and fire pits. So the day after I finished my thesis and, and handed it in, which was on the food of early pre-contact native peoples in Canada, I got a job at the Museum of Natural History in Oxford and analyzing seeds and, and, and plant materials from British archaeological sites for the Oxford Archaeological Unit. So they'd come in with a sample of a bag of black soil and little bits of charcoal that they'd found from some fire pit from a, it could have been Neolithic, um, it could have been medieval. So I would analyze those seeds and, and, and identify them, separate them and say, well, that's a wheat, barley, oats, rye weeds. So you get some idea of reconstructing the environment within the field. And you might find beans and you might think, oh, okay, were they rotating crops or what were they doing? And what crops were they growing? And you come up with a bit of a 
a story and interpretation of how these seeds reflect what they were eating, what the local environment was like, and what crops and plants and things they were using. And now that was really interesting and, and really fun. I worked on a lot of Roman sites, and I was very interested in the medieval period, which people were less interested in, but that you know connected me to North America and Canada and the first Europeans there. Now, I know around this point, you had a chance encounter with some thatched roofing from an old building in the UK, and that changed your career trajectory. Can you tell me what happened? I was sitting at my desk in the university museum, picking samples apart, and a friend of mine walked in with a shoebox, literally a shoebox full of wheat. And his wife worked in a building museum, a historic building museum in Buckinghamshire. And her boss was asked to do a recording of an old historic building that was having its roof redone. So the thatch was stripped off and replaced with some modern thatch, water reed. But he realized this was a medieval building and the thatch on this building was the first layer that had been put on when that building was constructed in 1425. Um, so he had two bin bags of this old medieval thatch, full of the most precious ancient cereals, that, if you're interested in that, you know, around. And he was about to put it on a bonfire. And she said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I have this friend who's a little bit of a wheat obsessive in Oxford, where my husband works, and uh, can I bring him a sample? He might be interested in this. So by pure luck, she gave it to Pear. Pear walked in and said, here, John, what do you think? This is from 1425. So I took the lid off, and it really was like it was my Howard Carter in the tomb moment. And I was amazed at what it looked like. If you could picture, well, there are about 25 years of wheat in there, and every one of them was different. Whole ears of wheat. Whole ears. And did you know anything about thatching or thatched roofs? Had it ever crossed your mind? I knew nothing about thatching. I just knew you put straw on a roof and it kept the water up. I didn't know how it worked. Uh, we don't have thatched roofs in southern Ontario. And the other two archaeobotanists who were there we were quite experienced. They looked and said, it couldn't survive very long. It must be fairly new because thatch, you strip it off and put a new layer on. Well, that's not how thatching works. I didn't know that... The way historically thatch worked, you put a bottom layer of thatch on a roof, you tie that down, that's your permanent base coat that is never removed. Then you put weathering coats on top. And at the beginning, you don't even strip those half-weathered coats off. So after 30, 40 years, the roof is weathered a bit. You just slap another layer on. You do that for about 200 years, and then it starts to become a one-off, one-on situation. So you've got the first 200 years buildup of a record of the cereals that were put on that roof. And if the roof is dated from 1425, or I have some from 1350, if not earlier, I actually have a late Norman sample. That is an incredible record, but it's also an archaeological record because it's layered. So most archaeologists are looking down in the ground. Well, I started looking up into the roof and said, there we have the best preserved examples of cereals, cereal land races anybody has anywhere. And, and, and it's a uniquely British and to some degree Irish situation. And some of those ears I recognized right away. I knew that I hadn't been grown in Britain for 200 years, not commercially. So I knew the date was already quite old. But the fact that all the bread wheat, the triticum estivum wheat in there was also every ear a bit unique. It was clearly from a mixed population of land race. And he said, I've got two bin bags of this. And that changed my life. That's amazing. So, so where do you even start? You know, in a sense, there was too much information. So all these people are sitting there picking apart samples of wheat, barley, rye, oats, maybe. Because all this material is very fragmented and broken down. You can't say very much about a crop. But I want to know about yield. I, I want to know about 
ultimately about sustainability and how medieval fields worked. So this was a pile of data that allowed me to reconstruct yield. And because I had the whole ear and a good part of the stem, so morphologically, by measuring the, the kind of internode, because a wheat plant has all these nodes along the stem, and they're in a mathematical formula. So I can look at the ear, I can count the florets, I can count how many grains are there, I can, I can come up with that idea, and then I can relate that to the height of the straw. So I was able to reconstruct the average height of a medieval crop. And remember, wheat from even 1550, 1600 is very, very similar to the wheat that was grown a thousand years before that. So wheat has changed more in the last century than it has in the previous thousand years, if not more. So it's a key into the ancient history of, of all of our cereal crops. Anyway, I was able to conclude that your average medieval wheat was about six foot tall and yielded about 600 kilos. That's the short of it. And crops were never pure. And I think this thatch reflects what most farmers grew, what most people grew, certainly for local markets and for themselves. Now, obviously, you can't plant those grains, but have you been able to, I don't know, take the genetics out of them and somehow recreate them? Because that would be a really interesting comparison, wouldn't it? I've been wanting to do that for 20 years. And we just started a project at Bristol University doing that very thing. And there may be some very weird genetic stuff that will come up there. I don't know where it'll go, but it's, we're just getting going on that. Uh, but also it'll allow us to see the connections between the cereals and the flow of grains, where they've come, have they, have a, has our wheat come from Scandinavia? Or there might be some lines in it from Spain or something. Um, like I grow barley, a mixture, mixed population of barley, some of which is bare barley, B-E-R-E, from up in Orkney in Shetland. And the view was always that that came in with the Vikings. But I'm convinced it was the ancient Neolithic barley that arrived here 4000 BC. Incredibly beautiful, productive six-row barley. So there's all sorts of mysteries that we can unravel by having this amazing medieval thatch samples. I'd like to think it'll point us in the direction of certain gene combinations or traits or, or whatever that I think could be really, really useful. I want to dive into plant breeding specifically now, because despite you turning away from it when you were younger, you did end up pursuing a PhD in plant breeding. So how did that come about? I was doing this work at Oxford, but it was very much, in, yes, in a museum, in a historical kind of context. But I'm, you know, I'm a botanist. I wanted to look at genetics. I wanted more science. And I wanted to be back in a proper science department, not an archaeology department. So I was approached by Reading Plant Science and ended up beginning a PhD there in, in the plant breeding section of agricultural botany. Did you enjoy being back in the sciences again? It was challenging. Uh, I, I really wanted to be in a science department, but all of what they were doing there was molecular. It was all GM. It was what was leading. Biotech was really getting gaining steam. And it was about herbicides and it was about conventional production. So there I show up saying, oh, what we need are to, uh, to reintroduce genetically diverse land races from the ancient past and we need to understand medieval farming if we're going to have sustainable farming today and we need more organic farming and they just looked and shook their head and said uh, no mate that's not the future and I thought it was the future. So you started out in your PhD if I understand it trying to develop a variety that would reproduce or draw on the medieval grains so talk me through how you approach that and how your thinking changed over time. 
So what I did was I thought, well, how do I, how do I deal with this cornucopia of, of cereal varieties I'm finding in these medieval roofs? Everyone's a bit different. I thought, well, I'll go to the gene banks and I'll pull out all the samples I can find that look like the, the ears I've found in these roofs. Now, the seed is dead. No seed is going to survive of cereal. It's going to last for more than five years, which is why we only have a trickle of the genetic resources that, you know, a tiny slice of what, what was grown in the past. And the types of wheat and, and rye and barley that I'm finding in these samples, some of them are completely unusual, very unusual. There's rivet wheats that I don't think, according to the experts, should have evolved, but they're in those samples. There was massive genetic diversity in our fields in the past, and that gave crops resilience. So that, okay, so I started pulling samples of these wheats out of gene banks, not just in Britain, but all over, France, Belgium, Canada, America, all over. So I grew them out in trial plots. And... Um, you know, maintaining a collection of a thousand wheat varieties, harvesting them, measuring them all, was quite time consuming. But I did that for five years for a lot of different wheats. And I kept them all separate because I thought, well, oh, there's plant breeding, right? And you select and narrow and you select and narrow and select and purify, and you create a variety, which you can then release commercially, which is this high yield and all the characteristics you want. But in the end, what almost all plant breeding is doing is creating a field full of clones. It's creating a monoculture. It, you know, every plant has ideally got all the advanced characteristics that you very creatively and, and amazingly bred into one line using any number of techniques. But really, every plant in the field is identical, and it's an industrial production system, isn't it? As long as you keep adding the inputs, you're going to get the output of grain. But you're wiping out the existing ecosystem. Your The soil is pretty much dead. Because they're so short, you need herbicides to control the weeds. Because they're all clones, you need to spray them with fungicides to get rid of the disease. Yes, you can breed disease resistance in, but that tends to break down. And, there, and with climate change, which was starting even then, people knew about it. You know, you've got to think 20 years ahead. And we're on a race, a biological race here, that, that diseases are evolving more quickly than we're going to be able to breed our way out of it. So I thought, well, what did they do in the past? Well, the sample ahead in front of me was probably very disease resistant. It was really tall, so it didn't matter about weeds. Massive root system to survive drought. Our modern wheats are very short with shallow root systems because when they dwarfed wheat plants with the dwarfing genes to create our modern elite hybrid varieties, that also dwarfed the root system. So it can't absorb water and nutrients from very deep. So there's all these things that I was seeing in a medieval sample that I thought, okay, it may not be perfect and the yield was low, but can we, can we take that concept and tweak it and improve it to create a modern version of a medieval land race that works in low input systems? You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So you're growing out all these grains that you've selected from gene banks all over the world based on what you saw in your medieval thatch samples in an effort to recreate a sort of medieval grain crop which was really diverse. Now, that sounds more like evolutionary plant breeding rather than plant breeding in the modern sense. Tell me more about that process and why you chose this approach. You know, plant breeding has been pretty much all about selection and purification and uniformity. But there have people who, who, who many people who before me were, 
they're saying, well, let's have an, an evolutionary approach to this. So, but evolution can't happen unless there's genetic diversity. So they would create modern populations. For example, you could take 20 elite varieties, modern hybrid varieties, and mix them together and create a, a swarm of diversity there. What normally would happen is you would then select the best ones out of that and then take them forward and create a new pure line variety. But if you kept that group with all that diversity and you uh, just grew it in the same field in whatever conditions you want, nature is going to impose its own selective forces on that. So that's evolutionary plant breeding and then humans can tweak it a little bit. But my problem with that is not that technique. That approach is brilliant. That That's allowing a crop to be exposed more to nature and, and to be more adaptive. But you've got to start with a massive amount of genetic diversity to begin with. So I wanted to go back and create a hugely genetically diverse population with as much resilience that I could in there. And I did tweak it and select ones that I thought looked a bit more high, high yielding. But yield is not the only thing we have to go for. I accept the yield penalty in return for sustainability and in, 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 you know, that, that I can grow it, um, that I know I'm going to get a decent crop every year. I want a tough crop that can deal with all these situations. So my selective criterion, I suppose, are very, very different. At this point, the funding for your project had run out. So how did you find more? 95% of the funding in the department was just, you know, from big grain companies working on molecular genetics and plant breeding and stuff, and I, I, that wasn't going to be my future. There was no way I was going to be able to keep 500 or 1,000. I have several thousand lines of wheat in my freezer here. How am I going to keep those all separate, and why? I'm not a gene bank. I'm not, I'm not running a normal plant breeding project to create a pure line variety. I only want to grow the wheat that survives in my area. So it was a difficult decision, but it was – a necessary decision. The only way I could, and I don't have land, I don't have a farm, I don't have a tractor. I, how am I going to do all this? So I thought, well, I have to go into the marketplace. The truth is there's very little money in grain. And I realized right away that there's no way I could make any money by selling grain. Uh, grain's a commodity. It's super cheap. Farmers get so little for the grain, it's almost uneconomic in the UK to grow it, or it has been. The prices are just going up because of crop failures, which is slightly contradictory. Uh, so I thought, how am I going to make this work? Well, add value to it. So I, I very much entrepreneurial because mm -hmm. no one was interested in funding this bizarre idea. So I managed to hook up with a family farm here where I am in Buckinghamshire near Great Missenden. And they were really good. They were interested in thatching straw, and it was an organic farm, so I knew it wasn't laden with chemicals, and the soil was quite healthy. And I found an old barn, so I rebuilt the barn and some other buildings, and I bought a mill and a, thresh and a threshing machine, and uh, I found an old winnowing machine from 1895 in perfect condition. I got in flaking machines, you know, grain polishers, sieves, and what I needed to start a small uh, heritage grain business. So talk me through how you grow out your heritage grains, your crop, and how does thatching come into this? Because I know you're still involved in the thatching world. So I literally took all of my wheat from all of these years and trial plots, and I threw it all into the same bushel. And I, and I went to a local farmer and I said, look, can you just grow this for me? And because, you know, the way a mixed population works a land race, it's about cooperation as much as competition. So I'm going to recreate 
one of these medieval populations. And because it's genetically diverse, it's more resilient. And that is important in a thatching sense as well, because we have a crisis again in the thatching industry. Basically, wheat's become so short that most of the wheat varieties are useless for thatching. They're just too short. And so I was working with thatchers to improve the quality of thatching straw. And one of the problems is you've got to cut that by hand with a reaper binder and then stook it up in the field and let it dry and then comb it and process it to get it into the state of thatching straw. And you're very limited to 10 or 20 acres. You can't do more than that by hand. And then it ripens. If it ripens fully, you've got to cut thatching straw while it's still slightly green. This might seem esoteric, but it's actually quite important. But you've got to cut the straw just before it's fully ripe. You just can't get to a large acreage with an old-fashioned reaper binder and do it all by hand. Nobody wants to stoop wheat in a field for a week. So if I mix all my best thatching wheats together and it'll ripen over a longer period, and then I can harvest the crop, sell the thatching straw for a really good price, which is far more than the grain, plus I have the grain that I can sell as a flour for baking. So I thought there's a double harvest. That's what people did in the past. I've got to find a way of doing that sustainably, but I know my yield is quite low compared to a modern farm, but that's okay. So I literally threw them all together with a view to producing a good crop of thatching straw. And I was interested in the bread because I'd baked and I, and, and I knew a few bakers who said, ooh, that's very interesting old flour. That's probably the taste of the past. So I thought, well, here we go. I need money to pay my bills and to fund my research and my crop development work. And so I will make thatching straw and grain, and it's got to be from a mixed population. So I literally threw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties into a field, and it worked. People wanted the flour. It was delicious. It was flavorful. The straw was good for thatching. Those varieties that weren't well adapted, that were too short, they'd be outcompeted. It worked. And it's been evolving and adapting on four or five different farms for almost 20 years now. Suit never had a failure, Mockwood. Um, never had a climate failure, never had a crop failure. I've had human failures, but mostly not. You've touched on the fact that this is a low input system, but not specifically organic. I wonder, can you quantify how your grain crop stacks up against conventional intensive farming and organic yields? In the UK, if you're a conventional farmer, you grow wheat, you could grow wheat continuously with all your sprays, your fungicides, your nitrates, whatever. The soil is just a medium you grow it in. But basically, it's a, it's a continuous conventional chemical-based production method. And if you get anywhere from three to five tons an acre over five years, but you need one break crop, you've got 15 tons, let's say. But that whole approach to me is just not sustainable and we've got to find a different way. So what's the alternative? Organic. Okay, of course, organic today is certified organic, and there are lots of rules about how you do that. So if you're going to grow grain organically, you need to grow three years of clover to build nitrogen, to build organic matter. Then you plow that down and grow a single crop of wheat for human consumption. I'm interested in growing wheat for humans. And remember, organic farmers are growing modern varieties. Those modern varieties have shallow root systems. They're adapted to high input systems. If you grow them organically, they produce a third of the yield that they would with the, the chemical regime. So in five years, you've grown one crop of milling wheat. And you're lucky if you get two tons. So two tons in five years for an organic system 
at least 15 in the conventional system. Well, okay, there's a price to be paid for that, which is destroying the planet. We can't keep doing it. So looking at organic, okay, organic's the way in the sense of not having chemicals, but it's just not productive enough. We are not going to feed the UK if we use that rotational system because for every acre of wheat, you need three acres of, of, of clover grass lay. Well, we'd have to cover the country in clover grass just to produce the grain we're feeding. But remember, two thirds of the grain conventional farmers grow in the UK is fed to animals. And, and we're importing grain too, high quality grain from Canada and various places. There's no way the UK can be self-sufficient. So we have to do better. So how do we do better? Well, I call it natural grain farming or restorative continuous cropping. And when you say continuous cropping, what do you mean? I lose a couple of percentage points of my harvest out the back of the combine every time I harvest. And that grain falls on the ground and starts to grow. Farmers call it volunteers. And they go, oh, you must kill the volunteers. There's going to be a green bridge of disease that's going to be terrible for your crop. Well, I have massive genetic diversity in my crop, so I don't have disease. Or I have every disease, but they're all at a low level because I have an ecosystem that's developed that leads to genetic diversity. So I'm walking through this field after the harvest, and I'm seeing all the seedlings. I'm saying, well, I've got a wheat field already growing. So my combine has acted as a drill. So what any farmer would do is spray it off with glyphosate or plow it and then start over. But every time you plow, you just plow up more weed seeds. I'm creating a rod for my own back. So we spread clover down and the clover suppresses all the weeds, adds loads of nitrogen to the system. And I started doing it year after year in the same field because I didn't want to rent the fields for three years when they were just clover because I don't have any cows. I don't want any animals. I left all the straw then on the field because I thought, well, okay, let's think back to the Neolithic where I got into this about this first farming communities. They collected the ears, but there's no evidence of plowing for 5,000 years. People didn't till the soil when they first started farming. I realized, so just shred all the straw. It breaks down, feeds the soil surface. The worms pull it down. It's a slow release of nitrogen. And then I thought, well, I'll just broadcast the seed like, like out of the combine. So I started actually doing that and it worked fine. I had beautiful crops and I'm consistently getting 1.2 tons an acre. Now they'll say, whoa, 1.2 tons an acre, that's abysmally low. So if I get 1.2 tons per acre and an organic farmer might get 1.6, 1.8, maybe two, but I get it every year. So if you go 1.2 times five, I've got six tons and an organic farmer gets two tons. So I'm producing three times the grain of an organic system, but of course, no animal products, but that's fine with me. So I believe my system, which I call restorative continuous cropping, is producing three times what an organic system requires. And, it, and the two key things are you need clover understory. The only thing that leaves that field is the grain. I welcome weeds. I want to rewild the wheat field. So it's, it's a combination of that productive system, which is mimicking natural ecosystems, mimicking what was done thousands of years ago, but you also need the crop that is genetically diverse. So it's the two planks of this system. And I'm starting to call it natural grain farming, and, and it works. And how does it stack up for the consumer? Is it a lot more expensive for them? To make a pizza in London, a standard pizza, 14 pounds, let's say, the amount of flour you need to make that pizza costs about nine pence. To make it from heritage grains, you have to add another 11 pence onto that. That's the price of saving the planet if you love pizza. Are you willing to pay another 11 pence for the sake of having a grain that's grown in a very sustainable way that's going to have more flavor, I, I would argue, and more nutrition, I would argue? I actually think most consumers are willing to pay that. We can afford 
to grow grain in a way that is benevolent to the environment, that is sustainable, that actually sequesters carbon. We are running out of time. So one last question from me. You've been bridging the world of modern plant breeding and historical cropping techniques. So I'm curious to know what you think modern plant breeders need to take away from this interview and what direction you think they need to go in in the future. People say, oh, we've been genetically altering our crops for 10,000 years. Well, I would say crops have been altered genetically for 10,000 years, but it doesn't mean we were breeding them. Joe Crusader would go to the Middle East and pick up a handful of grain and come back and maybe throw it in his bushel. And most of those would die out, but some might have stayed there. So you had gene flow, but that was happening at that population level. And the goal was not just high yield, it was sustainability. You needed to feed your family every year guaranteed. So you needed a tough crop with deep roots that you knew was going to produce what you needed. And we've changed all that. And plant breeders really got going, I suppose, somewhere around 1830s, 1850s, certainly in the UK. It was industrial revolution, wasn't it? It was about having the highest yield you could and uniformity because mechanization was coming in and they wanted industrial crops. So they narrowed all that. We lost all that genetic diversity. Plant breeders threw out all that genetic diversity as they were improving crops. And they really genuinely and benevolently wanted to improve yields for farmers. But of course, as soon as the yields went up, prices come down and farmers are basically where they were. And who's benefiting, you could argue. So we ended up by, let's say, the late 1800s with quite a few, I suppose, pure-line crops that had been selected from the ancient populations. And in the UK, the first hybrid wheat is released in 1906. So that's when plant breeding, scientific plant breeding, really kicks off. And then everything else is genetically uniform monoculture, as far as I'm concerned. When I use the word heritage grains, I I very much mean pre-1900 or thereabouts. When plant breeders really get going on understanding inheritance and, and, and more intensive selection methods and hybridization and all that, So plant breeders are just there as a tool of industrial grain production. Boy, that's a phrase that maybe people won't like. And it's perfectly logical that humans want to grow, to have a crop that's the highest yielding crop possible. I understand that desire. And that's what we've been gunning for for 150 years. The most high yield, you can manipulate the plant structure, you can manipulate its efficiency, you can do everything you want, but it's all geared towards having the highest possible yield. Well, yield doesn't come out of nowhere. They've developed crops that are incredibly good at producing high yields, but only if you have massive amounts of inputs to maintain them. It's a sterile, well, they've replaced the ecosystem. It's not an agro ecosystem in any way. It's just a medium called soil with rows of plants that are genetically identical for, for, for producing all that food. I just don't think that's going to work anymore. We've destroyed the environment. Biodiversity is pretty much gone. Soil's dead. You know, we have got massive climate change. Oh, we need to feed people. Yeah, well, you know, I, I always refer to modern varieties like Formula One cars. Now, if you put airplane fuel in the engine and put them on a flat track, with all the right mechanics and millions of, of, of people helping, yeah, that car is going to go 250 miles an hour. But that car right now for me is racing towards a brick wall at 250 miles an hour. If you take that F1 car and you put it on a country lane with lots of holes and bumps and dirty diesel in the engine, it ain't going very fast. But a good old 
tough Jeep's going to get there. And I think that's where we are. We just can't keep racing forward. So I want plant breeders to look at low input production. These crops from the past were efficient at getting nitrogen. As soon as you create, make fertilizer, it's incredibly energy demanding. And spraying it's going to kill your soil, kill the mycorrhiza, all that kind of thing. So I want to find really, really efficient plants that are able to grow in natural uh, low nitrogen conditions. There isn't a single ecosystem in nature that has high nitrogen. That's what I want. I want, I want a mixed population that's very, very genetically resilient that can deal with drought and rain and all the stuff that we're going to get. Having one variety where every plant in the field is the same, you can try to breed in all the resilience you want. But if you want serious resilience, you need a biodiverse ecosystem and then you need genetic diversity within that crop. And, and, and I go back, you know, I've never had external funding for this. I've had to pay my way. Mm-hmm. And, and the only reason I'm still here is it works. It works at every level and it works, well, it certainly works for farmers financially. You know, we pay the farmers who grow for us, who grow for me on a per acre basis, not a per ton basis. All we do is we literally broadcast the grain into a field or perhaps drill it if you have the right equipment and then I mow the stubble. So I'm broadcasting into the previous year's tall stubble. I mean, you know, a couple of foot tall stubble. And I mow that to create this mulch over the grain. And I walk away. I close the gate and I come back and harvest it. And, and you think, well, there's no fossil fuel use. There's no contracting costs. It's actually incredibly cheap to do. As Fukuoka would say, it's lazy man farming. Well, I wouldn't say I'm lazy, but it's just, you know, the less you till, the less you put in, the more profitable it is. I know the yield's lower, but we're on this kind of um, conveyor belt of production, and you end up with a crop of wheat that is very cheap to sell anyway. You hardly make any money. It only survives through subsidies, let's face it. This system is broken. Plant breeders have catered to that system. And they've got to think outside the box in terms of what's coming in a climate change sense. I think plant breeders are scared of the black box. They need to control everything. It's like, you know, it's your painting that you've created. But I'm happy to accept a mixed population with 2,000 varieties in. I can't name you all those varieties. Well, I can roughly, I can tell you roughly. But which one in proportions? I don't need to know that. I don't really care. All I know is that it works. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. It has been such an interesting conversation and very thought-provoking. Thank you very much for sharing it. It's been really fascinating. You're very tolerant to listen to me blabber on so much, but I appreciate it. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.